I'm a big fan of the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy uh, based on a, a book by, the, by an author, J.R. Tolkien, who happened to be good friends with C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors. But one of the things that he says really kind of summarizes what that whole series is about. He says, the quest stands on the edge of a knife. Stray but a little, and it will fail. But hope remains if friends stay true. And if you know the series, you know how that really encapsulates what it's all about. And that's why it intrigues me. That's why I'm drawn to it. I love that storyline of loyal friendship, loyal fellowship, of really unlikely people. I mean, you had uh, hobbits, uh, elf, dwarf, wizard, man, living separate lives in terms of their character, but yet brought together in loyal friendship around a common goal. At the heart of the movie, it's really all about their journey together, right? And of all those characters, there, were no, there was a friendship none stronger than what you saw with the two hobbits, Sam and Frodo. Remember those guys? There was one particular scene, you may remember this, where they're traveling together. They had been separated from the group. And they are on this quest. Uh, namely, that Frodo was the only one who could hold this ring that had to be destroyed at Mount Doom or the evil that it represented would rule the world. So pretty big deal, right? <laughs> but they're exhausted. I mean, they're at the end of the rope. They can't imagine taking another step forward, and they just stop. But they're perplexed because to, to stay where they're at would be certain death because the enemy was hot on their trail. So Sam is a good friend to, to Frodo, tries to, to speak to him to kind of distract him from their, their circumstances, and what he does is he draws his attention back to where they came from, the Shire, where they lived. And just wanted to remind Frodo that, that that's what they're trying to protect. But listen to what he says as he speaks to his friend. He says, do you remember the Shire, Mr. Frodo? It'll be spring soon. And the orchards will be in blossom. The birds will be nesting in the hazel thicket. And, and they'll be sowing the summer barley in the lower fields. And... They'll be eating the first of the strawberries with cream. Do you, do you remember the strawberries, Mr. Frodo? And Frodo, overcome with despair, says, No, Sam, I can't recall the taste of food, nor the sound of water, nor the touch of grass. He says, I'm, I'm naked in the dark with nothing, no veil between me and the will of fire. I can see him with my waking eyes. Sam turns to Frodo with de determination and he says, then let us be rid of it. Once and for all, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry the ring for you, but I can carry you. And it was that friendship, that loyal commitment that ultimately allowed them to finish the mission, to destroy the ring and to preserve what was good and right about the land. This theme of friendship runs throughout that trilogy and it's really a great illustration of the power of undivided fellowship. And that's a topic that is very consistent and important within Scripture as well. There is an example of that in Ecclesiastes when Solomon's writing and he says two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one fails... Or if one falls down, his, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? 
One may be overpowered. Two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. See, there's power in the presence of an undivided fellowship. In fact, I, as I've thought through our passage this morning, even feel like it's one of the most important attributes that exists within the church of Jesus Christ. Paul seems to echo that same thought in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Like we see in the Lord of the Rings, the mission of the church is carried out based on our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, our unity in the Spirit, our intent on one purpose. And our strength is derived from a commitment of undivided fellowship. See, in our passage this morning, John is writing to encourage those who have remained faithful to their fellowship within the church. This is important for us as as well, especially because of all the distractions in the world that we talked about last week. We need to be reminded of our commitment to one another in our pursuit of a common goal, being of the same mind, intent on one purpose. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we offer this time to You. We know that it is the unity of the Spirit fellowship that we share that unites us around a common purpose to glorify You and to make Your name known through the uttermost parts of the world. So as we read this passage this morning, we pray that You teach us through the work of Your Spirit indwelling our hearts that it might draw us closer to You and come and confirm within us the mission that we've been called to serve. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you would, turn to 1 John chapter 2. We'll pick up where we left off last in uh, verse 18. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. If you want to read along with me, John's writing says, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they are not of us. I want to pause there and remind you of something I shared uh, as we've gone through this, uh, the 1 John letter before, and that is the fact that, that John is not writing to help this church identify who the false teachers are. Right? When those people, those false teachers, separated themselves from a true believing community, they revealed where their true allegiance was. John says they went out from us because they were not of us. So we don't need to, to make the mistake of misapplying John's letter by, by looking around us to see if we might be able to identify who the imposters are. Because that's not the point. Instead, John is writing to affirm those who have remained. 
in order to encourage their commitment to one another. In the midst of all the confusion that surrounds them, that's the point. This is not about what others have done. This is about what we, as believers in Jesus Christ, what we must do. The false teachers left because they were never a part of the church to begin with. John is not writing to discredit the false teachers. They're doing a good job of that on their own. Instead, John is writing to encourage those who have remained. And he wants them to know that their fellowship with one another, how they care and love one another, is one of the most important attributes of their faith in Jesus Christ. After all, you'll remember what Jesus said to His disciples, right? He told them, this is your trademark. This is how they will know you are My disciples. How? Because of your love for one another. That's John's point here as well. And he wants them to know that all that is happening around them, all these confusing things, shouldn't surprise them. He says in verse 18, after all, it's the last hour. Now, when John uses this terminology, he's not in some way suggesting that he has a knowledge of the imminent return of Christ knowing exactly what day and what hour that's going to happen. Because John knows, along with all the other disciples, what Jesus had told them. And that is, no one knows the day or the hour of His return. Instead, what what John is pointing to is the era of time between the first and the second coming of Jesus. In that spectrum of time is what they call the last hour. And it's the last hour. Because when Jesus does return... Time is up. Time is up. Unlike his first appearance where he made it clear. You can read in John 3.16 and 17. He says, I did not come to judge the world, but to bring salvation to the world. But in his second coming, the Scripture is also clear and tells us that we will all give an account on that day to Jesus Christ who comes to judge both the living and the dead. We, you and I, are living in the last hour. The day of His return has been set. It has been determined. God knows exactly when it's going to be. We don't, but here's what we do know. Because that day has been set and time continues to move, today we are one day closer to His return. It is imminent. That era of time between the the first and second coming of Christ... The Bible tells us that there will be a number of people who stand opposed to the apostolic teaching of who Jesus is and what He came to do. So John's saying, don't be surprised. In verse 18, John calls these people the Antichrists. Jesus actually spoke of the same thing. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read to you what He says in Matthew chapter. 24, verse 23 says, Therefore, if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe Him. For the false Christ and the false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Jesus said it would happen. And He knew that as a disciple. John did. And so He turns and says, Look, this is what He was talking about. This is even now beginning. These 
are the Antichrists. Now, John knows, because of the book of Revelation, which he penned, that there is a day when the Antichrist, the one called the Antichrist, will in fact come. And we know that that really literally is the day that all hell breaks loose. But until that day, the Scripture tells us that there will be many who precede Him, who are like Him, because they represent, they, they mirror His same lying and deceptive nature. John wants us to know that our greatest defense against these lies is our ability to stand together in the truth. As Paul says, to be of the same heart, to be of the same mind, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. But let me ask you, how do we know what is true, right? I mean, there's a lot of opinions, a lot of suggestions out there, so how do we know which one's right? Well, John answers that question next. Look at verse 20. It says, You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. As a true believer, your anointing in response to your faith in Jesus Christ is the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit who reveals to you what is good and right and true. It is the fulfillment of that promise made by Jesus to His disciples when He says in John 14, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father sends in My name, will teach you all things and will bring to remembrance all that I said to you. And so John is writing to this church and he's basically saying, I'm not giving you new information. Instead, I'm only reminding you of what you already know to be true because of the Holy Spirit who indwells you. Now, I want you to know that as I thought through that this week, that, that idea, that teaching that, that John has is of great comfort to me as a pastor and a teacher. Because as I prepare a sermon each week, I often feel the need to teach you something new, Right? And yet I know, I am certain that there are people in this room who have forgotten more than I've been able to learn. And yet so many times I convince myself that it's my job to enlighten you with some new truth. Something that you didn't already know. The freedom I find in Scripture, and in particular what what John says here, is that no matter how much you do or do not know, I'm not the one responsible for, for teaching you something new, for revealing some new truth. In fact, the Scripture is quite clear that it's impossible. Because the only way, listen to this, the only way anyone ever comes to a knowledge of the truth to begin with is because of a divine work of the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that? Just think back. Let me give you an example. If you'll remember when Jesus is visiting with His disciples and He asks the question, who do they say that I am? Remember that? And so they give several examples of things they've heard. John the Baptist, Elijah, and they go through a list. And then Jesus turns to them and He says, but who do you say that I am? Remember Peter spoke up, right? And He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember what Jesus told them in response to that? 
said, blessed are you, Simon Verona, because man did not reveal that to you. But my Father in heaven is the one. It's the same idea that, that Paul has when he writes to the Corinthians. And he says that no one can say Jesus is Lord except how? By the Spirit. By the Spirit. Any knowledge and understanding that anyone has of God's truth is only made possible by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now as I say that, it shouldn't only be uh, an encouragement to, be, to me, it should be of great encouragement to you as well. We'll look at this in more detail, but if you'll look down in verse 27 of, of, of chapter 2, John's going to go on to say, you have no need of anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things. Now, I read that and I think, well, that kind of puts me out of a job, doesn't it? <laughs> but that, that's not his point. His point here is this. People are fallible, prone to sin. And no one person has a, a corner on the market of truth. So if you really want to know, if you really want to understand what is good and right and true, then there's only one reliable place where you can find that answer. The Holy Spirit who resides in you. That is your teacher. Now with that being said, I want you to think about it this way. I'm going to bring up a bad subject, and that is the fact that school is about to start. Sorry, I know it's inevitable. Eventually it's going to happen, right? But we're going to go back into school and, and, and you're there for a purpose, right? You're there to learn something. In particular, you're there to learn something new, to be taught. But just because you're in the presence of teaching doesn't necessarily mean you're going to learn anything, right? I mean, because you could show up and put on headphones and listen to music all semester long and while that teacher's instructing, you don't hear a word and the fact is, you won't learn a thing. So, learning from a teacher implies what? That you're listening to the teacher. The very same thing is true as it relates to the Holy Spirit. We learn in response to what we're being taught, but that implies that we're willing to listen. I've heard so many people say over time that, you know, I just don't know the Scripture as well as I need to, so I'll just depend on those who do. And I'll listen to them. And my response to that is, please don't do that. Please don't do that. That'd be like reading the cliff notes when you have an opportunity to sit down face to face and visit with the author himself. So why would you do that? You've been invited to sit down with the author, the spirit who inspired those words that he may teach you. And so that no matter what anyone else might tell you, that's your source of knowing what is right and good and true. So take everything that I say, take anything that anyone else says, and you go back to Scripture and you listen to the Spirit and you make sure that they line up. I'll give you an example. This is a familiar account in the book of Acts. It's in chapter 17, verse 10. Again, just listen to what this is saying as I read it to you. Paul and Silas have actually been kicked out of Thessalonica. Okay? And they're on their way, and they come to a place called Berea. Listen to what happens while they're there. It says, When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than, than those of Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. 
examining the Scriptures daily to see whether the things were so. And in response, many of them therefore believed. Received the Word with eagerness. Daily examine the Scripture and allow the Spirit to convict you, to convince you of what is true. John says, I'm not writing to you because you do not know the truth. I'm writing in cooperation of the Spirit to remind you of what you already know to be true. And that's what I do every single time I get up here every single Sunday. And then he goes on to reveal a lie of the false teachers that the Holy Spirit will not confirm to be true. Look at what he says in verse 22. He says, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, before we walk through the deception of the false teachers... I want to make sure that you don't make the mistake of of reserving this to an early church issue that we don't necessarily deal with anymore because that would be a wrong assumption. In fact, I think it's equally, if not more relevant in our world today. This last week, I had a note on my desk from a man that I visit with from time to time who is convinced that Jesus is not God. He's so convinced that he pursues me consistently in hopes of persuading me to the same opinion. Our city is heavily populated with people who will go door to door with a message that echoes the very same message of the false teachers in this passage. These lies are not dead and gone. They are resurrected in every generation and they are alive and well today. You need to know that is true. And this may be an oversimplification, but but I'm convinced that you will find at the source of most every single heresy a lie about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what's happening here in 1 John. John says in verse 22 that they deny that Jesus is the Christ. He goes on to say that, that they deny the Father and the Son. Now, what John identifies here, if you'll remember when we looked at John's Gospel, he said in his Gospel, his purpose of writing, I'm writing to you so that you might believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Which is the exact opposite of what is being taught by the false teachers. Now, there's some debate on what exact, who these teachers were and what exactly we're saying. We, we only have bits and pieces. Some suggest that their source is... is can be traced back to a guy by the name of Serenthus. Now, it's interesting because Serenthus lived in the time of John. He actually lived in the area of Ephesus where we believe this letter is being written. And we know that he was an open opponent to the Apostle John. And what Serenthus believed is that, that, that Jesus was a man, but, but the Spirit of God came upon him at baptism and stayed with him until the cross and then left. That's what he taught, and that's what was being communicated. I want you to know that Jehovah's Witnesses today have a very similar theory. They suggest that Jesus was a normal man, 
uniquely gifted and indwelled by the Spirit. They see Him as some kind of a, a semi-divine, a, a kind of a, a, a middle of the ground, neither being fully human or, or fully God. Mormons take a little bit of a different approach and see that Jesus is the literal Son of God, procreated as a spirit child of God, literally born as an offspring to carry out His purposes on earth. And the thing that I want you to keep in mind as you consider all these is that they will all claim to be Christians. They will all claim to be a part of the church. That's true of the false teachers in our passage as well. But in one form or another, Jesus is seen as a creation of God and is not believed to be God incarnate. Our Emmanuel, God with us. So John says, if you do not accept the testimony of Jesus, of that which I am an eyewitness, then you are not in right relationship with the Father. Athanasius was an early church father, one of my favorite characters in church history, and he battled some of these same heresies that were going on during his time as well. He has an argument that really resonates with me. This is what he says. Listen to this. He says, an, an essential feature of being a creature is that we require redemption. But no creature can save another creature. <laughs> Only Creator can redeem His creation. The core of the Christian faith, affirmed within all of us by the presence of the Holy Spirit, is that only God can save. And since our salvation is in Christ alone, that there's no other name given under heaven, given to man by which we can be saved, then we believe that Jesus is God incarnate. But I understand that for some, this is a difficult thing to grasp, right? To put your mind around that. It's like Jason said, sometimes the wisdom of God is unfathomable for a finite mind like ours. Even the disciples struggled with that. You'll remember when Philip went to Jesus and he said, just show us the Father and that will be enough. And you remember what Jesus' response was? He didn't come up and say, oh no, Philip, listen, you've got it all wrong. It's actually two different people, okay? Let, let me explain to you. He says what? You remember? He says, when you see me, you see the Father. It was an echo of what he had already told them when he said, I and the Father are one. Because I believe the testimony of Scripture is very clear and in agreement with the author of Hebrews when he says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature. And what that means to you and me is that when you see Jesus, you see God. This is the distinguishing characteristic of our faith. Believing that God did not send, He did not create, He did not empower someone else to do that which only He could do. We worship Jesus as the author of our salvation, knowing that we are forbidden to worship anyone but God alone. We shall have no other gods before us. We believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. There's no other name under heaven given unto man by which we must be saved. The one who listens to the Spirit 
and believes this to be true, walks in fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, or as John would say, he who confesses the Son has the Father. I hope as you think about what this passage has to say, that it really does penetrate deeply inside of your heart. That it resonates with the Spirit that indwells you. And that we're encouraged, as John called that church to do, to, to be faithful to our fellowship with one another. Our fellowship with the Spirit and, and that testimony of who Christ is and what He came to do. And I want to remind us as we kind of put some, some application to this that, that our fellowship with one another is in fact our greatest strength. Being of the same mind, of the same heart, intent on one purpose. That's why the, the writer of Hebrews very clearly admonishes us not to forsake our own gathering together as is the habit of some, but encourage each other to love and good deeds, even more as the day draws near. Familiar verse, right? We've mentioned it before. But I want to draw your attention to that last phrase. Even more as the day draws near. Why would he say that? Why is that important? Well, because as the day draws near, Scripture says, the opposition will increase. The deception of the false Christ and the false teachers will grow in magnitude. The stronger those attacks become, the more necessary is the strength of our bond. Reminds me of when I was a kid. You played this game as well, Red Rover, right? You get in the line, you hold hands with people, and you look across, and typically if you're smart, you start with the smallest guy, right? Red Rover, Red Rover, send little Johnny over. And you know you're going to be able to handle little Johnny. He's not going to break that grip that you have on your partners. And you do that, and what do you do? You save who to last? <laughs> Big Johnny, right? And before Big Johnny comes over, you make sure you've got a tight grip. You're standing close together. You're locking arms. You're doing everything you can to brace for that impact because if you don't prepare, you can't hold it. Well, I believe what Scripture's telling us is the big one's coming. Brace for impact. Tighten your grip. Stick close together. Even more as the day draws near. The unity of the fellowship is our greatest strength. And listen to this. It will also be the target of our enemy. Because he understands the truth that Jesus spoke when he said, a house divided against itself will not stand. Our enemy knows that truth as good as anyone. And so he will seek to uh, attack and divide and, and disrupt the fellowship, fellowship of the believers. If we don't stand together, we don't stand a chance. So whatever it takes, we need to protect the unity of the Spirit with one another. And I want us to, to think about that and, and be reminded also that, that the bond of that strength that we share with one another is based on what the Scripture tells us as the, the fellowship of the Spirit. See, when the Bible says that there is a wisdom in a multitude of counselors, it's making the point that no one person is in sole possession of the truth. Not a pastor, not an elder, not a priest, not anyone that you can ever meet is in sole possession of the of the truth. Instead, it is the common bond of the Spirit using the inspired Word of God that collectively affirms something to be true. There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, 
Because no one person is in sole possession of the truth. So that's why we're doing what we're doing with Jason and Jill this weekend. We're inviting you into that process and we're convinced in the truth of Scripture that if this is in fact God's will, we will be unified in spirit, intent on one purpose, moving in a common direction. That's also why we talk about and repeat and continue to emphasize the importance of small groups within this church body. Showing up on Sunday morning in the absence of fellowship with other believers during the week is insufficient. It leaves you in a vulnerable place. Let me be honest with you. You're not that good on your own. No matter what you know, no matter what you've done, you are not that good on your own. We need the body to protect us from the air that we are often inclined to in isolation. Left to ourselves, we end up convincing ourselves of, of things that are not true. I had an opportunity this last week to sit down with a, a couple in our church family. So admire their boldness to come and visit with me about a situation that would cause all of us to, to labor over. It, it was gut-wrenching. It had no easy answers. It was difficult to navigate. But they'd spent some time together trying to think through what would be best. And they had come up to some conclusions and so we sat down and visited together and as they shared those thoughts, uh, it became clear that what they had determined was not in alignment with Scripture. And so we began to talk about that and, and what Scripture has to say about the things that they were struggling with. And my encouragement to them after we spent some time walking through that is to draw together with their small group. And they were willing to do that. And they shared this very same thing with the small group and they spent two hours together looking at Scripture, determining what God's purpose might be for this situation. And they walked out of that time telling me that they felt fully equipped and prepared to navigate well based on the counsel of God's Word and the support of the small group that was right there with them. And they were not alone. I'm telling you, that's the way it's supposed to work. And that's what we are calling you to live. Unity of the fellowship is our greatest strength. The fellowship of the Spirit is our common bond. But, but there's one more thing that I want you to consider this morning that I think is of great significance. And it's this. The proclamation of the Gospel is our common goal. The proclamation of the Gospel is our common goal. It is the last hour. It is the last hour. Do you understand what I'm saying? It is the last hour. As Peter says, he says that the Lord is not slow about His promise, specifically that to return, as some count slowness. But He is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. You and I live in a very special time in human history. We live within that window of opportunity between His first and His second coming. It is this during this time, uniquely set apart in all of time, when the mystery of salvation through faith in Christ alone has been revealed, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about this. Out of all the millions and billions and trillions of people who have populated this earth, we are the ones who have been given the privilege, the very special privilege, 
to proclaim the good news of salvation found in Christ alone, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those who lived before us saw but a shadow of things to come. Those who live after us, when Jesus returns, stand in judgment and in the midst of God's wrath. But we exist. You and I exist in a very privileged time in human history in order that we might proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ alone. It is our common goal. May we not be distracted by the things of this world to the point that we lose sight of the reason that we're here to begin with. That's why we exist. So go. Listen to me. Go and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. United in fellowship is our greatest strength. United in the fellowship of the Spirit is our common bond. United in the proclamation of the gospel is our common goal. Let's be of the same mind, of the same heart, united in spirit, intent on one very important purpose. That's why we exist. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word, so clearly spoken and yet so difficult to understand, in fact, impossible outside of the work of your Spirit who shows us what is true, what is good, what is right. So I pray for each of us to be guided by that Spirit, to be led to sit down with your Word, to hear and understand the truth of who you are and who we are as your children, what you've called us to be and do for your namesake, and ultimately living a life to the praise and glory of your grace. Father, may we take these words, may they penetrate deeply in our hearts, and may we live differently because we're convinced that they are true. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.